welcome back to Beyond a Bedtime Story, a parent's guide to children's reading. In today's episode, we will be discussing cool, engaging techniques that will be fun for your child. I'll begin by describing those that I've researched, while the following sections will delve into anecdotes from practices that I've observed. Just for a bit of background, teaching literacy must consider the formation of phonological or phonemic awareness when children hear and manipulate the distinct sounds in spoken language. In addition to establishing these technicalities and building fundamentals, instruction also must focus on the practice of decontextualized language, which is talking about the ideas beyond the text that consider a non-present audience, background information, narrative, or explanation. So we're really trying to engage the fundamentals of sound work and manipulating the sounds in a language and learning how to speak and how to read, as well as when you're given a read aloud, being able to discuss that read aloud with a child and having them comprehend what's going on in the read aloud. Through the research that I conducted, I found a lot of intriguing practices involved around comprehension and story structure. One fact in particular found by Moreau in 1988 was that students' comprehension and sense of story structure were improved over children in control groups when their read-alouds were accompanied by role-play, retelling, and reconstructing through pictures. So read-alouds were never just reading simply what was on the page. Teachers had children act out what was going on, speak back and retell what was going on, or use images to contextualize what was going on. They ended up comprehending more because they're putting into practice the things they're learning in an interactive manner. It's really the idea that children of that age need to have a little bit of incentive to be focused or incentive to remember what they're learning. And when you make it fun for them, when they're role playing or they're drawing pictures, this is stuff they're normally used to doing and it makes the kind of daunting experience of comprehending a story more normal and more regular for the children and it ends up helping them it ends up improving their comprehension so it's cool that as parents you know you can make reading fun and making it fun won't take away from that experience it will actually add to that experience Similarly, and this is more recent research from 2016, um, but it really supports what Moreau found in 1988. Cahill and Gregory investigated a kindergarten classroom where students daily engaged in a practice of creating and sharing stories. The process involved students drawing and then verbally narrating a story associated with the picture that they drew. Now they were verbally sharing the story, and that's a scaffolding technique that ensures underdeveloped writing skills at the kindergarten level, which they're usually underdeveloped at that time, won't infringe upon students' creativity and the stories that they're really telling. It won't hinder that practice of creative writing. Even though it's not transferring words onto a paper, it is still creative writing in the idea that they're creating these ideas in a storyline and they're comprehending what does it mean to be a story and what does a story involve. So as a parent, it's hearing those words and acknowledging that storytelling is not simply writing sentences about a story. It's more than that. It's about developing characters and a storyline and themes and letting children run free with that idea and just let them draw pictures and make stories from it. It just has so much value that I think is overlooked because it's more seen as like, oh, a fun practice that students do. Of course they want to tell stories. What does that have to do with reading? But it actually has a lot to do with reading. 
If children are creating their own mediums and creating their own stories, they're going to recognize elements of storytelling that they're engaging in when they're reading a story. And that's really going to help what we call that decontextualized language, the comprehension aspect of reading. Now, I actually observed exactly what these scholars are talking about in person through observing peer mentorships that I conducted my sophomore year of high school. So I will get into that and those experiences, those firsthand stories and anecdotes in the next section. Welcome to segment two. We're going to pick right back up, diving into those decontextualized language skills put into action that I witnessed through peer, peer mentorship. So to begin, I have to kind of explain what environment I was witnessing all of these things happening and what these mentorships look like. My sophomore year of high school, so that's two years ago at this point, my classmate and I conducted a field trip for our sophomore year class where we went to a neighboring elementary school and we collaborated with the children through a story creation workshop. And what that workshop looked like, and it's important to understand what it looked like because it's honestly something that you can replicate at home with your child. And I saw it be so successful, so I can only imagine what it would look like being practiced on the daily. We went to the class and presented a picture on the board, a blow up picture, we paired off the sophomore, the sophomore age students with elementary students. And within the groups, the children presented with the picture would just create a story about that picture, what's going on in the picture. It was like most of them were very fictional, very out there. Um, we somehow got from vampires to monsters. And literally, this picture was just a shipwreck. It was just a boat and we got all sorts of creative things. So doing this activity will definitely be fun for you as parents because you really get to see um, your child's creativity shine. But back to what I was saying, essentially we had these students, they were third grade students, so they were not kindergarten students, they were third grade students, but it's definitely a practice that can be done amongst many varying levels. But it's actually encouraging to see that it's still something that's valuable to third graders is the storytelling process. But the third graders were paired with the sophomore students. And while the third graders were creating their stories, the sophomore students were just transcribing the story. They weren't influencing the story. They weren't telling the child how to think or what to think. They were just there as a person of support. If a child was stuck, they could prompt them to think about character setting, all of that stuff. But they were essentially there to just listen and write out the story for the child. But as I discussed, this creativity that just radiated from the children, it was so encouraging to see them be so excited to create their own stories. And it really let their imagination run free. While it didn't seem like that, it, they were developing reading skills and writing skills and literacy skills because they're considering character when they're developing these monsters and vampires. They're thinking about conflict when these monsters and vampires are fighting in some of these stories, that's what happened. But that's still conflict. And it was all of these things crafted based on a picture that we presented. So within a setting they were given, and the mood and the tone set by that setting, 
they created this wonderful, unique story. But it still was created within the context of that image. So they're understanding that setting impacts character and conflict and all of these things. So I really saw what I had seen, what I had read before about story creation being important to decontextualize language and comprehension skills, I saw that happen in front of my eyes. I saw it for myself. I know that that is something that works. And it's so easy to replicate at home. Find a fun picture for your child, sit them down, and create a story together. They can just talk to you about what they see in the picture and a story that they see, and it no longer becomes this daunting, oh, I'm learning how to read, and comprehend stories, really they have all the power in their hands and it's a fun activity for them. Children still delight in creating stories and there's value in that. And as parents recognizing that value and supporting that and giving them an environment to be creative and to be curious is the best thing that you can do for your child. I'm obviously very passionate about these stories just because of how successful I saw them be and also how impactful it was for me as a sophomore to watch and my peers who were sophomores to watch. We were impressed by their creativity and it made us happy seeing their creativity. It really brightened our day. So I think as parents, you're also going to enjoy this experience that you would go through with your child, just sharing in all of this magic that you're going to create. So that pretty much covers the fun activities that you can conduct for decontextualized language and comprehension. But my next segment will cover the sound practices that I observed in the kindergarten classes last year. And there are some pretty exciting ones that I think you're definitely going to want to bring into your home. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to jump into this last final segment and unpack all of the intriguing sound techniques that I witnessed in these kindergarten classrooms. And I really observed these children love these activities. I truly believe that you will find value in these stories, really getting an insider perspective of what your child is doing in the classroom and how you might replicate that at home and all the benefits that come with that. Sound practices were fundamental to literacy instruction. Every single day, we would start off with collective gatherings on the carpet and teachers would employ multiple sound activities that always included hand motions to keep the students engaged. And these were hand motions that were practiced, they were ritualized, they were known by these children, and they were followed by everyone. For example, some exercises were rhyming, identifying beginning vowel or ending sounds, repeating words, or breaking them up by syllable. Students really responded well to these auditory promptings such as listening for a word and swapping out the beginning and ending sounds, and that sounded something like this. The teacher would offer the word bun, for example, and say, swap out, take off the B and replace it with an S, to which the students would procure the word sun. But the practice was broken down in that it was like, bun, take off the B, add the S, un. And you can't see me, I probably look a little ridiculous sitting in the studio tapping out when no one is here, but it really becomes a habit for me having observed it and really these children, when they're sounding out b un, each letter has a tap of the finger. If you take your thumb and your pointer finger, it's that tapping. 
And it's such a simple motion, this tapping, and yet it's so vital for these students. It just keeps them engaged with the material that they're learning, and it gives them a physical way to manifest the sound and the processing that they're doing, swapping out these letters, really comprehending these sounds. Another hand motion that was apparent was when teachers were stretching vowel sounds, such as the word dog. D-O-G is when they're stretching the vowel sound, they're really honing in on that O, that vowel. Students would take their hands and they'd do a roller coaster motion. So D-O-G. And I'm hoping you can visualize me doing this. My two hands going up with that O sound and down as we approach that G. The students would get so excited when they got to use this roller coaster motion and it was so fun for them and they weren't even realizing how miraculous it was for me to watch them be so self-sufficient. They were excited to learn but they were doing it all on their own and it's because these hand motions were ritualized and students were used to engaging them and always engaging them. So it really created this independence that is so pivotal to literacy learning and really taking control of that learning, children taking control of their own learning. Aside from hand motions, another fun activity that went along with sound was one of the teachers used a bag of objects and it always surrounded a certain letter, a certain sound. So in the one that I observed, it was the letter W and the sound was W. So students were familiar with this activity. When she said that they were going to do the bag of objects activity, you saw them all get excited and rush to the carpet. And it was this anticipated thing. So the teacher would describe each object, an object within the bag. And it was an object that the students know started with the sound w, started with a W. So she's describing the object and children would then guess what the object is. And after a lot of guesses, she would present that object to them and it would be displayed in front of the class. For example, let's see if you can guess what the object is. This object has four wheels. It can be pulled behind you and it's used to carry stuff. Now, if you're as smart as these kindergartners in the class, you would have said wagon, to which she would pull out the wagon and everyone be cheer and be excited to see that they were right about this object. So really here, it's the idea that creating excitement around an activity is valuable to students despite it not being your rigid sound work. It's not learning your ABCs, but associating real life application to these sounds. These sounds represent living objects and they're in your everyday life and it's that kind of identification that is so vital while also being so fun for these students. And that is totally an activity that you can do at home. It doesn't even have to be this big affair of getting a bag and getting objects. I mean, I think that's more fun. The more fun it is, the more willing your child will be to do it. But even just creating associations in everyday life like, oh, look at that object. That's a basketball, but that starts with B. Just taking those initial steps of reconciling your child with their lived environment and how sound plays into their lived environment and that literacy is all around. I hope you learned a lot from both the observations that I had in the classroom regarding sound work. Maybe you can implement some of those practices such as hand motions or the bag activity at home, as well as 
prompting your child to create their own stories, provide them with images from which they can story tell to you. Whether you know it or not, whether it feels like it or not, it should be fun and it should feel like a fun activity, and yet you're really supporting your child. It's really helping your child with decontextualized language and comprehension as well as reconciling with sounds and growing accustomed to and comfortable with language in of itself. So thank you for joining me on this episode and I can't wait to see you next time.